So let's pray. Father, thank you for another week to live and to learn more about you and to grow in our relationship with you. And we just thank you for the this life, which is preparation for the next life. Lord, this life is not the whole point. The next life is, and we're working towards the next life, Lord, where you have the honor and the glory waiting for us, where we're going to be serving alongside you in your kingdom, Lord, in your physical kingdom. And we look forward to that, Father. Help us to be faithful, because the more faithful we are in this life, then the more opportunities we get to serve you in the next life. So help us to realize that this life does count, and it is worthwhile sacrificing for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, John 12, and hopefully we'll go through verses 12 to 30 today. In the last week, we reflected on Mary's humble and extravagant act of worship. Remember, she gave basically a year's worth of pay when she poured that oil of spikenard onto Jesus' feet and his head. And we learned that true worship costs is going to involve sacrifice. Now, someone said this to me. They said, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. That's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And so we're going to keep learning about that today. Also, we were reminded last week that the greatest blessing we can be to Christ is simply to spend time with him, is to enjoy the relationship. So our relationship with God then becomes a source of our strength in the midst of persecution, hard times and temptation, which is why it's so important. So everything comes back to our relationship with God. That's the number one thing. Not about how much you know, it's about who you know. So the storm reveals the strength of the roots. A shallow-rooted tree will be blown over, but if you're like the tree in Psalm 1, then you'll stand strong. Your roots are deep in the Word of God. Now, Judas. What was Judas focused on? Well, he was focused on the things of the world and had no mind or desire or love for the things of God. And that's the difference between a true convert and a false convert. A true worshipper is one desiring or willing to sacrifice for Jesus, while a false convert is only in it for themselves. Now, you look at Judas and you think, well, he must have loved Jesus because, you know, he gave up everything to follow Jesus and to leave all those things behind. But no, Judas was only there because it suited him and there was a benefit to him. He wouldn't have been there otherwise. A false convert may fool everybody, even themselves, but they will never fool God. Jesus knew all along. So I just want to touch on the idea of true and false converts because we had the true worship and false worship last week and just extend that a bit. So our first scripture for today is 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. It says, Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So what is the test? Here's another scripture. Romans eight fifteen to 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. And 16 is a key verse here. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So how does this work in practice? How do we hear from his spirit? 
how does his spirit join with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children? Well, here's the test, or some test, all right? Have you repented of your sins, and are you changing to become more and more Christ-like, or are you still living the way you were before you made your profession of faith? That's the first point. Second point, do you have new desires to do the things that please God? Third point, do you experience God's discipline when you sin? Because if you don't, you're an illegitimate child. And lastly, do you have a hunger and, and a thirst for the Word of God? And do you have a desire to pray? So if the answer to those questions is no, like it was for Judas, then you're not a Christian. Okay, You have failed the test of genuine faith because the Holy Spirit is not joining with your spirit to affirm that you are a child of God. So Judas acted, looked, he dressed the same, he acted the same, spoke the same as the other disciples, but he was nothing like them. And what's most amazing to me is that in Matthew 10, 1-4, it tells us that Jesus gave the 12 disciples power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And this included Judas, who in that same passage is described as the one who would betray Jesus. Amazing, eh? So it's no wonder the disciples were so confused and couldn't understand that who was Jesus talking about when they were talking about, you know, who's going to betray you, you know, because Judas had been casting out demons and doing miracles and preaching the gospel. It's just like, well, how can Judas not be one of us? Well, Judas be one of those who will say in the last days, or when he stands before the Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name, only to hear Jesus say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. Matthew 7.23 So close, but so far. So, so close to the truth, but so far. So in my mind's eye, I imagine Judas, who was already a thief, and he continued to be a thief. He's characterized by being a thief. He has simply discovered a new and easier way to steal. <laughs> you know, how easy it is to pretend to be like a Christian and then just steal the money because no one suspects you. It's great. So, good opportunity. And people do that in churches. It's like some guys and girls who go to youth group because it's easy to pick up a boyfriend or girlfriend there. You know, they blend in and they act, they speak the words, they, they sing the songs and stuff, but their desires and their motives are opposite to Christ. So that was just a bit of revision from last week. This week we're going to start in verse 12, and it's the triumphal entry. So John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, we'll just read those verses and we'll, we'll go through it. After that we'll go through the verses on dying to self in verses 20 to 26. So for now, just verse 12 to 19. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things are written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when 
he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What looked like that. Things change pretty quickly though. So, verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast. So remember there was about two and a half million people in Jerusalem. Oh, packed in. That means there's 250,000 lambs roaming the streets in people's houses. You know, there's lambs everywhere. Fleeting away. And it's Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan, and by our calendar, the 6th day of April, four days before the Feast of Passover. Now, according to the book of Exodus, it was this day when every family celebrating Passover would choose a lamb to sacrifice. So they would choose a lamb and bring it to the temple for inspection. And the priests and the families would watch the lamb closely from the 10th to the 14th day of Nisan in order to ensure that it was in the best of health and was without flaw or blemish. It had to be perfect, perfect lamb, perfect male lamb. So picture in your mind's eye, 250,000 or so lambs with each family of 10 or so, your combined families of 10 to eat this thing and um, eat this lamb. And yeah, just all in this one area. And into this confusion, noise, all these people, this is when Jesus chooses to come into Jerusalem as the Messiah, to be recognized as the Messiah. Now, if you go back to Daniel, it actually tells us that this is the day that the Messiah would come. So I'll just quickly go through the basics of this. So know this, Daniel was told that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince Shall be sixty nine sevens. That's that's um, Daniel chapter nine. Yeah, about verse twenty four. I don't written down, but from memory, I think that's right. Nine twenty four, and yeah, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be sixty nine sevens. So that's sixty nine seven year units, or four hundred and eighty three years. Now, in the old calendar, it's 360-day years, so you can't just add the years. You've got to actually add the days. So if you do that, if you go back in history, it's March 14, 445 BC was the day Artaxerxes gave the Jews the charge to rebuild Jerusalem. That was in Nehemiah. And the day that Jesus rode in, they believe, was April 6, AD 32, and so basically, you work out the number of days, I won't go into the details now, but um, work out the number of days and it comes to this, this point. So no wonder Jesus cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and, and he, you know, how I've longed to gather you under my wings like a hen does her chicks. But you were not willing. So he's basically saying that you should have known the day of my coming. You should have known when I was coming, that this, I'm here, I am the Messiah. They didn't recognize their own Messiah. They rejected their own Messiah. And they would pay a high price for not knowing or not recognizing the Messiah. And Jesus said that they'd be dispersed and Jerusalem would be destroyed. And it did happen. So verse 12, the second part. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took 
branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So, Hosanna, what does Hosanna mean? Save now, that's good. So this large, enthusiastic crowd greeted Jesus with words from which psalm? Testing your brains now. 118, very good. Okay, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. So Hosanna means save now. And on this day, the crowd received Jesus as the Messiah. And remember the, the song, this is the day the Lord has made. This is was what it's referring to. Psalm 118. Now, they called him the King of Israel. So they're saying, save now, the King of Israel. So in their mind, they had a political salvation. So they wanted to be freed from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus showed that his purpose was peace because he rode in on a donkey. Remember when he comes again the second time, he's going to be riding a white horse. Okay. Now, the verse... There is Zechariah 9.9, which we'll read in a bit. First, why did they wave palm branches? Can you think of anything in the Old Testament where they told them to wave palm branches? Well, they go back to Antiochus Epiphanes, or Pythanes, some say it. He was a terrible, bloodthirsty Syrian king. Antiochus, Epiphanes, a man so blasphemous that he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies, made the priests drink its blood. So he bludgeoned the Jews into submission. And after several years of this, a guy called Judas Maccabee, whose name means hammer, I believe, and his brothers decided to nail Antiochus by launching a guerrilla war against him. And the scriptures tell us in Daniel that from the time that the pig was sacrificed, the abomination of desolation, which is a picture of the what's going to happen in the tribulation, the halfway point there. But 2,300 days from when the pig was sacrificed and the temple, daily temple offerings were stopped to the day when it was resumed um, was 2,300 days. And this only happened because Judas Maccabee and his band of renegades, a small group of people, overcame the entire Syrian army. It was a miracle. And what happened was the people spontaneously celebrated by waving palm branches. So there was a political, physical deliverance, and they waved palm branches. And from that time on, on the back of the Jewish coins, they would have a palm branch. And that was a symbol of deliverance from oppression. So about 200 years now later, the Jews find themselves oppressed again, not by the Syrians, but by the Romans. So what the people were essentially saying was, when they cried Hosanna and waved palm branches as Jesus rode into Jerusalem was, be Judas Maccabee, deliver us from the Romans. But when they realized Jesus had a different agenda than a political one, a different agenda than a national one, a different agenda than a material one, their cry changed from Hosanna to crucify him. So Jesus wasn't quite the saviour they were looking for, which is, um, if you go back into that culture, that's understandable, but still disappointing. John Corson says, the same is still true. This is an application for us. 
Christians individually and churches corporately mobilize politically for this cause or for that personality to change our government or to change our economy, but very few are interested in a cross that speaks of dying to self. An arresting picture of Calvary depicts three empty crosses on Golgotha with a donkey in the background chewing on a palm frond. You see, it's one thing to shout at a parade and something else altogether to stand at the foot of the cross. Verse 14, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, just a tidbit here of Jewish history. According to rabbinical theory, when Messiah came, he would ride into Jerusalem on a white horse. If, however, Israel was not ready for the Messiah, he would ride in on a donkey. So, and here is Jesus riding in on a donkey. Now, this has nothing to do with this rabbinical speculation. Jesus rode in on a donkey because he had to fulfill prophecy. And that prophecy is in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus fulfilled that prediction exactly. Surprise, surprise. 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So what it's telling us here is at the time, the disciples had no idea what was going on. You know, they were sitting there being with Jesus three years and this happens and they have no idea what's going on. They didn't understand because Jesus hadn't revealed it yet to them, into their hearts. So sometimes we can be in the same place. We're reading the scriptures and they're confusing, they make no sense, but keep reading, keep studying, for as Jesus is glorified in your life, you will have a greater and greater understanding of the scriptures. The problem is we want understanding, but we don't want to glorify the Lord by obeying him. And we all, something like we all know more than what we're putting into practice. We're all um, more knowledgeable than what we're actually doing. So if we actually put into practice everything that we knew, we'd be really, really godly people. So as we put into practice what we already know, Jesus will keep on revealing to us new truth, truth from the word. Verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, it wouldn't be very long before that same crowd would be shouting, Crucify him. So they didn't have much to fear. Uh, verse 20, now that was the triumphant entry. Now we're going to go into Jesus teaching in the temple about dying to self. So we'll read verses 20 to 30 together. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honour. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me but for your sake. So, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. So why do they come? They come to worship. Now before Jesus was born, we had wise men from the east, Gentiles from the east, and here we have Gentiles from the west also coming to worship. And then they came to Philip and asked him, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So Andrew did what he did initially in John chapter 1, verse 41. He brought Philip to Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So remember we talked about this before. The hour, Jesus kept saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, now his hour has come. Before his hour had not yet come, it wasn't his time to die, and he was miraculously delivered from those crowds of people who wanted to kill him. Now he's not going to be delivered. He's going to be offered up as a sacrifice. Now, it's interesting that Jesus refers to his death as being glorified. So he's not saying that he's going to be glorified in the eyes of men. He's already been glorified in the eyes of men, That's the triumphal entry. This glorification that Jesus is pointing to or talking about is being glorified on the cross. Now the world sees a cross as disgraceful humiliation, as being shameful, but Jesus saw the cross as glory. And I've mentioned a few times lately that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Everything is opposite. Think of it this way. If you're hated by this evil and corrupt world, it means it's good because you're good and Christ-like because the world hates Jesus, the light of the world. And if you're like Jesus, the world will hate you, right? So if the world hates you, then it means that you're like Jesus and that's good. The world would much rather hide out in the shadows and continue to roll around and play in the pigsty of sin. So on the other hand, being loved by the world is bad because it means that we are bad or evil because the world loves its own. If the world can't tell that we're different and it's approving of us, then that's not a really good thing. Therefore, it's an honour for those who name the name of Christ to be hated by the world because it affirms who we are. Does that make sense? So what the world considers shameful, we consider glory. Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. So, 
the potential of a grain of wheat is not realized until it's dead. Jesus is saying, the only way you can see me is in the light of my death, burial and resurrection. Or another way of saying it, before there can be resurrection power and fruitfulness, there must be death. So everything Jesus said and did was all about the cross. It all pointed to the cross. And if we don't look at Jesus with the cross, Calvary, glasses on, then we will miss the point of a lot of what he's saying. And practically, how does this work for us? What does it mean for us to see things at the cross, um, through the cross, through the lens of the cross? Well, we might say, if the Lord loves me, why did my husband leave me? Says a broken-hearted woman. You know, I don't understand. Well, I don't either. (laughs) But this I do know. Jesus' arms are open on the cross of Calvary, and he's saying to you, trust me, you watch, you wait, you'll see that out of death will come life. So it's really great to be a believer because in every situation we get to take people to the cross and say, here's your answer. What's your answer? Well, out of death will come life. Jesus died on the cross, proved that he loved you, and his resurrection proved that he will also give you resurrection life and resurrection power in this life. So despite your circumstances, you are still victorious. Now, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we have this contrast, loves his life and hates his life. So we're called to hate our life in the sense that we disregard it. In disregarding it, we want to give it up freely to God. So our life is precious, but it's only valuable because it's something we can give to God. That's basically why our life is precious, why why it has value is because something is valuable when we give it to God. And an important part of this is understanding that we're pilgrims and sojourners with a home in heaven instead of earth. It's really hard to hate your life on this earth if this earth and this world is what you consider your home because it's what your focus is on. And uh, just going to read Hebrews to remind us of this idea. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Pilgrims are sojourners. Foreigners and nomads. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they had come from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So verse 26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So if anyone serves me, let him follow me. If we are Christians, we must follow Jesus in the path of others-centered and heaven-centered living. So the path that we take to follow Jesus is via the cross, but it finishes with resurrection glory. And I want to tell you a story to help illustrate this verse about 
um, when where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, my father will honor. So here's a story. The story is told of a prince and his servant traveling through a hostile region who were taken captive by the enemy. After being beaten and thrown into a dungeon, the prince developed a terrible fever and it looked as though his days were numbered. Semi-conscious as he was, however, he didn't miss the opportunity to alert his servant when their guard fell asleep one day. Get his keys and get out of here, the prince said. I'm too weak. I can't make it. But you go. This is your chance. My prince, answered the servant, where you are, there I will be. If need be, we'll both die here together. Two weeks later, the prince's father launched an invasion and freed his imprisoned son in the process. And now the prince says to the father, O father, even as my servant stayed with me in my danger, suffered with me in my sickness, stood by me in my imprisonment, honor him now. And the servant was honored throughout the kingdom. Pretty neat story, eh? And uh, the same is true for us. We can always opt out. We can take the easy way out. We can choose to escape. Or we can choose to stay. The cross and obedience are not always easy. And the Lord knows that we're paying a price to follow him. God understands that. You know, you might have been passed by for promotions at work because you stood for your integrity or you made, have stayed in a difficult relationship because you committed yourself to your marriage vows. The world says, forget it. Here's the key. Get out. Be free. But you said, no, my master, my prince, my savior has called me to follow him. And even though it's not easy, I will stay by him. I will be obedient. So for us who who stand by the Son, stand by Jesus, walk the road that goes via the cross, endure the suffering. After the invasion, when Jesus comes back and brings us home to heaven and we come back with him, we will be honored greatly, for the Father honors those who honor his Son. So verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Thinking about the implications of the cross troubled Jesus' soul. But notice what he does in his troubled time. He prays. He says, Father, save me from this hour. And Jesus is saying, God, Father, I'm not actually looking forward to doing this. That's a really honest prayer. So we can be honest in our prayers too. If we're not enjoying something, if we're suffering through something, if we're Feeling like want to give up, we can be honest. Say, God, do I really need to be going through this? I don't like going through this. <laughs> and and just be honest with him. Jesus was. But then he says in the next part of that verse, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So, Father, can I get out? Can I escape? But wait, says Jesus, this is why I came. So when we go through hard times and we submit ourselves to the Lord in prayer, then God will change our hearts. And as we're expressing to God our hurts, our fears, our sufferings, then it reminds us of our calling. We have to go back to our calling. The reason why we're here, the reason why we're Christians, 
and everything becomes crystal clear once again, and everything comes back into perspective. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, as a Christian, suffering is the key to growth and the key to a more intimate relationship with Christ. That's our purpose for living. Okay. And the next part is, Father, glorify your name. So Jesus didn't pray, glorify my name. He said, he prayed, glorify thy name or your name. And that reminds us that it's all about him and not about me. And then the Father says from heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So this is the third time the voice of the Father thunders from heaven. The first time was baptism, yes. Second time was Mount of Transfiguration. And what were they talking about at the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus' death. They're talking about his death, yeah. So at the baptism of Jesus, what did that symbolically represent? Dying. Okay, going under the water, coming out, death, resurrection. And here, it's also talking about his death. His hour has come. So in baptism, Jesus was in effect saying, I submit to the death and burial I know awaits me. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us as he talked with Moses and Elijah, he talked about his death. It's um, 9.31. And here, Jesus is struggling with the cross. Now, if Jesus struggled with the cross, guess what? We're going to struggle too. Okay? So we need to be praying too that we get the Holy Spirit's power to help us get through these trials because we can't do it on our own. And we might say, well, I never hear from God. Well, I'm not hearing from God now. He doesn't seem to be speaking to me. Well, here's the question. Where do you stand in relation to the cross? Are you dying to self or are you living to self? The one who dies to self is going to hear the heart and voice of the Father as he speaks to us. The one who's living for themselves has got sin in between themselves and God and they will not be hearing from the Lord. So that relationship is, on a practical level, broken if you're living for yourself because it's selfish. It's a sinful nature. You're living for the sinful nature. You're not living by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, in verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So, in other words, you know, these people hear this thing, this, this noise, and to some people it just sounds like thunder. It's not really God. Nah, it wasn't God. It's just thunder. And they didn't understand. They didn't understand the words. And neither will people understand when we say to them, you know, the Father's really been speaking to me. Because they will just mistake the voice for thunder. Nah, it's not God. And they won't understand where you're coming from. They won't understand that God has been talking to you, revealing himself to you. But it doesn't mean it's not true. And uh, I just remember it reminded me of a story. We were telling them that God was leading us to go to America and to Bible college, and they said, nah, God can't be telling you that. And we've been going to church for years, you know, we know what God does and what God doesn't do, and God doesn't talk to people like that. And it's like these people here, they're religious people who just couldn't hear. They were deaf. 
because they weren't living for God, they're living for themselves. And verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. So Jesus didn't need this confirmation. It's not like, oh, Father's saying, oh, Jesus is about to give up, I better encourage him. No, it's for those around him to understand that Jesus' ministry is blessed by the Father. Jesus' ministry is endorsed by the Father. And what's going to happen is been planned by the Father. Now, the disciples must have understood the voice, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to record what the Father spoke. So it says that some couldn't understand and some could. Now, to finish off, I'm not going to finish really quickly, but um, just a, a bit of an overview of this chapter. This is the final public teaching of Jesus because in the next chapter, in chapter 13, it's just his small group of people, his small group of disciples. So this is his last public teaching. And there's, there's more to come next week on, in this chapter, but this chapter, chapter 12, is the last public teaching. And it's important that we get what he's talking about, because he's talking about dying to self. He wants us to know how to get a life. You know how the world says, oh, get a life? You know, you've heard people say that, get a life. Well, Jesus is telling us how to get a life. And it's not by asserting yourself, it's not by pampering yourself, it's not by changing yourself, it's by dying to self. That's how we get a life. And these Greeks want to see Jesus, but as you look at the text carefully, it doesn't say that Jesus actually spoke to them. It just says Jesus responded to them, no one can see me except in light of the cross. No one can understand or Comprehend me except in the light of my death, burial, and resurrection. And again, just to emphasize this, we might have the same request. I want to see Jesus. I want to hear from him. I want to have a word from the Lord. Well, you know, he might be saying, I don't get what's happening in my life. I don't understand what's coming down on me. I don't understand what's going on. And Jesus says to us, Well, you'll only see me in the light of Calvary. We ask, Why is the Lord doing this? Why isn't he taking care of that? Why doesn't he love me? That's how we can think sometimes. And we can't answer the question. People come to us and say, why is God doing these things to us, right? Probably had that happen to you. And the best way we can answer them is saying, well, I can't answer the question of why your loved one died or why your wife left or why your business went bankrupt or why your cancer returned. But I can say that Jesus declares to you, the seeker, if you're seeking him, you will never understand apart from the cross. For it is there that you will see that I am madly in love with you, fervently in love with you. I died in your place. My heart was broken over your sin. Everything I have, I gave for you personally. Can't you trust me? Won't you trust me? So that's looking at things from the, the point of view of the cross. Okay, We're going to go through hard times. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love us. When we go back to the cross, we're reminded that Jesus does love us and that these things are working for our good. So, you know, don't talk about your, your problems so much. It's we just we need to talk about them a little bit and share, get them off our chest. But you know what? When we have communion, what does it remind us of? How much he loves us, yeah. Yeah. So the main thing is how much he loves us, okay? We celebrate communion at the Lord's table. We're reminded that we can trust him because his nail-scarred hand and his sword-pierced side are evidence of his love for us.
And we may not understand what's going on. We may not be sure which direction to take. But we know that when my hand is in his and I'm next to his side, then I'm in the right place. And as you see the Lord on the cross, you want to take up the cross. And we go back to verse 25 and 26. I've got it in the New Living Translation here. It says, Those who live their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. If you took a single grain of wheat and put it in the ground and it produced some stalks of grain and you planted those seeds in the ground, how many years before the entire world would be covered in wheat? 14 years. That's the estimate. So if you kept, you know, each year just kept doing the same thing, planting all the, the grains of wheat. And so the idea here is mortification brings multiplication, death brings life. And here's another little story for you. The family of a missionary in the Amazon basin went to visit him after traveling by plane, helicopter, canoe, and foot. <laughs> they reached him at last. Wow, you really buried yourself down here, they exclaimed. Not buried, planted, said the missionary. Big difference. So we've been planted. Okay. So death brings life. Now, is it easy? Is this process easy? No, it's not. What did Jesus say in verse 27? Again, from the New Living now. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. So, we will be in agony sometimes, like Jesus was. Not as much as him, obviously. He's not going to call us to suffer the sins of mankind. Nothing compares to that. But we need to realize that life is going to be tough. What does that promise in Timothy say? For all who are godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the one. So dying to self, that suffering is part of the process of dying to self. It's part of the process of being put into the ground and dying so the new life can come up. And the next thing that we read was John twelve twenty eight. Father, glorify your name. And Jesus ends his prayer saying, I'm not in it for me, I'm in it for you. Father, glorify your name, even though that means death. And from that point on, he never looked back. And the same can be true for us today. Maybe, you know, you've been living for yourself, I've been questioning the Lord, I've been uptight and upset, wondering why I can't see Jesus, not hearing from him. Well, the only way we'll see him is at the cross. Go to Calvary and die to self, because it's there you will see Jesus. Remember that the path that ends in glory starts at the cross, the place of death to self. If Jesus had to die to self, then so must we. He's the example, we must follow his example. But our motive must be for love. It's really important, and for the glory of the Father. So, Father, I just thank you, Lord, for these um, really important verses here. Um, it's quite simple, but very difficult. And so I just pray that you will help us as we um, go through this next week to reflect on what's going on in our own lives. Are we living for ourselves or are we living for you? Are we hearing from you or are we distant because we're so busy doing our own thing? 
Challenge us, Father. Examine us. Um, help us to examine ourselves, as it says in Psalm 139. And see if there's any wicked way in me. Test me, Lord. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, if there's going to be fruitfulness, there's got to be death first. The old life has to die before the new life can begin. Lord, I pray that we can have the strength and the courage and the stamina to persevere and to continue to die to self as we live this life and that you will be glorified through our lives individually and us as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.